On April 1st, 1960, a 19-year-old Filipino fisherman named Rufino Bering hastily paddled his dugout canoe back to Punta Engano on Macton Island. He leapt ashore, terrified of what he'd seen, the tentacle of a black sea monster out in the open ocean not 50 yards away from where he had dropped his line. I was very frightened, said Rufino to a skeptical audience, presumably not impressed with this April Fool's Day story. I tried to get away as fast as I could. And needless to say, most of his fellow villagers thought he'd been seeing things. But Rufino was telling the truth. He had indeed been seeing things. He was, in fact, the only person in the world who had sighted the sea monster, a sea monster which had taken a photograph of the young fisherman in his canoe, his face lost in the shadow of his wide-brim hat, looking exactly the way you would expect a 19-year-old in a canoe to look if he was just about to get the hell out of there just as fast as he could. Meanwhile, inside the sea monster, the man who snapped the photo later had this to say about the strange encounter. It's a ludicrous situation. On one hand, an impassive Asian staring with curious concentration at an unusual object in the water. On the other, a U.S. Navy officer equipped with all the technical devices money and science can procure, looking back with equally studied concentration. On one end of the periscope, an outrigger canoe propelled by the brawny arms of its builder. On the other end, a $100 million submarine, the newest, biggest, most powerful in the world, on a history-making voyage. What an abyss, what centuries of scientific development lie between me and him. The man who wrote those words, the man at the other end of the periscope, was U.S. Navy Captain Edward L. Beach Jr., commander of what was at the time the largest and most expensive submarine in human history, SSRN 586 USS Triton. And his encounter with Rufino Bering on day 37 of his 61-day mission marked the first and only time that anyone outside of the men actually on the top secret mission managed to catch even a glimpse of the Triton as she became the first sub ever to sail all the way around the planet while underwater the entire time. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for communism freedom. Communism must be a system of international control and conformity. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Never give in. Never, never, never. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Operation Sandblast, it was called, although it was originally named Project Magellan, since the Triton would follow as closely as possible. Ferdinand Magellan's first circumnavigation of the globe launched in 1519 and completed in 1522. On September 20th, 1519, Magellan led five ships and 270 men out of San Lucar de Baraneda on the southern coast of Spain. 1,082 days later, one of the five ships, the Victoria, returned to port with 18 of the 270 men that had departed. And Magellan was not among them, having been killed in the Philippine Islands not too far from where Rufino Bering saw his sea monster centuries later. Since this mission would be top secret, the crew didn't even know what the plan was until they were at sea. It was judged that Project Magellan was a little too on the nose. And so the Navy renamed it Operation Sandblast because Captain Beach, see what they did there? 
said, quote, it would take a lot of sand, unquote, meaning guts, to stay submerged for two straight months. Nothing even remotely like it had ever been tried before. Just six weeks before Triton left her home in New London, Connecticut, President Eisenhower's naval aide, Captain Evan Arand, summed up the entire Cold War mindset in three sentences. Quote, There's no doubt that sooner or later the USSR will put some nuclear submarine to sea. It would be a shame if we permit them to announce this to the world by virtue of some dramatic feat which we could have done ourselves. This could be Sputnik all over again, but without any excuses. Project Magellan is, in my estimation, head and shoulders above any of the remainder as a feat of submarine navigation and a demonstration of the global range of nuclear submarines." This was, of course, more than a mere publicity stunt. Returning home by late April, such a breathtaking display of American know-how would be just the thing for President Eisenhower to announce just before his Paris summit with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev in May. Now, unfortunately for Captain Beach and his crew, exactly one week after returning to the United States, Francis Gary Powers' U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union, an event which wiped Operation Sandblast off the front page and soured the Paris summit beyond salvation. Operation Sandblast had driven home what was at first only dimly apparent during Operation Sunshine, just a little less than two years earlier, which had featured the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, SSN 571, USS Nautilus, named after Captain Nemo's atomic-powered craft from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, prior to Nautilus, American submarines carried the letters SS, subsurface, followed by the hull number. But Nautilus would mark the beginning of an entirely new era because SSN-571 subsurface nuclear was the first boat whose linear descendants would go on to displace the mighty aircraft carrier as the indispensable weapon of the Cold War. Underway on nuclear power, radioed Commander Wilkinson as he took Nautilus out to sea for the first time on the morning of January 17, 1955. After a few years of sea trials and operational patrols, the nuclear power plant aboard Nautilus was purring like an atomic kitten, so it was time for the first tentative step to see what an SSN could really do. Operation Sunshine began on August 1st, 1958. USS Nautilus submerged in the Barrow Sea off the coast of Alaska and headed north. Two days later, just before midnight Eastern time on August 3rd, she passed directly under the ice of the Earth's North Pole, and 96 hours after submerging in the North Pacific, SSN-571 surfaced in the North Atlantic, just northeast of Greenland. Prior to Nautilus, a diesel-electric submarine, like the famed Gatto class used by the U.S. Navy during World War II, could run submerged on batteries for a maximum of about 48 hours, crawling along at a speed of two knots. That's about 96 miles total distance. But during Operation Sunshine, USS Nautilus traveled 1,590 nautical miles without surfacing, and then, a few years later, her big sister Triton would circumnavigate the entire globe underwater. It was a whole new world.
If you're one of those practical, disciplined people who've never found themselves under the burden of debt that you really can't meet, you don't really understand that it doesn't just drain your bank account. That kind of debt drains your entire emotional reserves. It kind of drains your soul. Having big debt is like a giant cloud that always follows you around, and it's almost impossible to relax. It's hard to be happy when you're in that kind of debt. Sometimes it's all you think about. The problem with debt, of course, is it's easy to get into, but until now, it's been tough to get out of. But now, fortunately, there's Upstart.com. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. They actually reward you based on your education and your job history. It's a smarter way to look at you because, frankly, Upstart thinks that you're more than your credit score. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate, and since it's just a soft pull, it won't affect your credit score. The hard pull happens if you accept the rate. Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next day. You get to consolidate all of these debts. You get to pay off all of these different creditors. All the phone calls stop, and now you've got one payment that's easy to make, and it's manageable and affordable. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit card debts or meet their financial goals. Just getting out of that incredible interest rate alone is enough to allow you to go to sleep at night. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash cold to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash cold. You know, there's a photo taken at State Pier in New London in 1962. It shows three nuclear subs tied up against the submarine tender USS Fulton. In the middle is SSN-571, USS Nautilus, an unfamiliar design to the eyes of both modern and World War II submariners. Nautilus looked like a cleaned-up version of the Pacific War's fleet submarines. On her port side, up against the subtender, is SSRN-586, USS Triton, which in the photo looks virtually identical to Nautilus, although half again larger. Despite its high cost and impressive size, Triton was obsolete practically from the moment she was launched. The SSRN in her designation stood for Subsurface Reconnaissance Nuclear. Even though she was fitted with six torpedo tubes, Triton had been designed as a radar picket, destined, ironically enough, to spend most of her time on the surface, spreading an early warning radar net out from the continental U.S. But the huge land-based radars of the Cold War appeared almost the same time Triton did. And aside from her spectacular success with Operation Sandblast, she was something of a one-off novelty. But the third sub in the photo was completely different. Significantly smaller looking than even Nautilus, SSN 585 looks like a bathtub toy next to the Triton, but that's largely due to the fact that even when surfaced, much of the hull of SSN 585 lies below the surface. Shaped like a teardrop with dive planes mounted on her sail and what would become iconic for US subs during the Cold War, SSN 585 USS Skipjack was the future. And tied up next to Nautilus and Triton, she looked it. And the reason Skipjack looked like the future while Nautilus and Triton looked like the past was because Skipjack was designed to be more efficient under the water than she would be on the surface. And that is a game changer. 
Four years before Skipjack was laid down, the U.S. Navy launched yet another one-off experimental design, USS Albacore, AGSS, don't ask, 569, a conventionally powered diesel electric boat that had the sleek teardrop shape of all modern submarines. This teardrop shape actually creates a lot of drag when running on the surface, but underwater, they're as slick as the species of tuna that both Albacore and Skipjack were named after. Prenuntius Futuri was Albacore's official motto, forerunner of the future, and that she was. That future would combine the teardrop hull of Albacore with the nuclear power plant of Nautilus to produce the Skipjack SSN 585, a sleek and deadly steel shark, the first true hunter-killer submarine in the world. Commissioned the same time I was, April of 1959, USS Skipjack was so far ahead of her time that she remained in active duty until April 19, 1990, an unbelievable 11,327 days. That's 31 years in service. USS Nautilus, commissioned in 1954, was finally retired in 1980. But unlike Skipjack, which was scrapped, as well as Triton, which was mostly scrapped, her huge sail, often mistakenly called the Conning Tower, having been saved and put to work guarding the entrance to the Triton Museum, Nautilus, on the other hand, was simply too historic to turn into millions of razor blades. The world's first nuclear-powered submarine is permanently docked at the U.S. Submarine Force Museum and Library in Groton, Connecticut, where SSN 571 is lovingly maintained and looking like she just rolled off the yards, ready to begin her extraordinary career. The pristine condition of USS Nautilus, even to this day, is perhaps the clearest single piece of evidence of who would go on to win the Cold War, especially when compared to her Soviet counterpart. Once Nautilus had been unveiled to the world and the potential of the nuclear submarine foreshadowed by her transit of the North Pole under the Arctic ice in Operation Sunshine, the Soviets began a crash program in order to catch up. The first Soviet nuclear submarine was named K-3, sometimes nicknamed Kit, meaning whale. Commissioned four years after the Nautilus, she also reached the North Pole submerged on June 17, 1962, also about four years after her American counterpart. Unlike Nautilus, however, K-3 was immediately retired to the lecture circuit, the boat sitting mostly idle at dockside while the crew took part in five full years of congresses and conferences. But in 1967, mechanical failures aboard a different Soviet sub forced K-3 back out to sea again to take up the original boat's patrol. Now, neither K-3 nor her crew were seaworthy. By the time she reached her patrol station in the Mediterranean, the air conditioning had failed and the temperature inside K-3 rose to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Even worse, while transiting the Norwegian Sea on the way home a few months later, a fire broke out aboard the whale in compartment number one, forcing the crew to seal off that section of the boat and retreat into compartment two. The automatic fire extinguishing system then activated in compartments both one and two, but unfortunately, this was a carbon dioxide-based fire suppression system. It put out the fire in compartment one, but the CO2 killed everyone sealed into compartment two. 
When the crew in Compartment 3 finally opened the door to try to rescue their shipmates in Compartment 2, they too were overcome by the carbon dioxide, at which point the entire front of the boat was sealed off and K3 surfaced. Four days later, she returned to port. 39 of her crew had died. K3, the first Soviet nuclear submarine, had gone on essentially two patrols during the life of the boat. A better idea of the desperate conditions forced upon the Russian men in the Soviet Navy can be had by looking at the history of the first Soviet nuclear ballistic missile submarine, and that boat was named K-19. One year and four days after Triton returned to port after Operation Sandblast, K-19 was finally ready. Now, unlike Nautilus and K-3, however, which had always been seen as experimental test beds rather than frontline fighting subs, by the time K-19 finally went into production, the Soviets had decided that their first nuclear ballistic missile submarine would carry three R-13 missiles mounted up in the sail, and each carrying a thermonuclear warhead of about a megaton. The R-13 had a range of only 370 miles, but given that so many U.S. cities lay along the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, a 300-plus-mile standoff range made K-19 into the kind of strategic weapon that Nautilus never was or was intended to be. K-19 had been plagued with problems from the moment she was designed and rushed into production. Her keel was laid down on October 17, 1958, but before long, two workers were killed when a fire broke out inside the partially completed hull. Not much later, six women workers were gluing a rubber lining to a water cistern aboard the boat when fumes from the adhesive overcame them in the confined space. All six of them died. As K-19's three missiles were being loaded prior to launch, one of the missile tube covers fell off, killing an electrician and yet another construction worker, an engineer this time, slipped and tumbled into a gap between two compartments and was killed in the fall. Before she was even afloat, 10 Russians had died inside her hull and they would not be the last. And needless to say, K-19 had already developed a reputation as an unlucky boat, and this was further enhanced during her christening ceremony on April 8, 1959. Tradition calls for a woman to smash a bottle across the bow of a ship, making champagne the first liquid to touch the hull. But in the case of K-19, it was not a woman, but rather a Soviet naval officer who did the honors even worse, the bottle bounced off of the rubber-coated hull and simply hung limply by the lanyard. Sailors are known to be a superstitious lot, and submarine sailors even more so. A failed christening was known to all to be the worst of all possible omens. Captain First Rank Nikolai Zatayev was given the honor of commanding the world's first socialist nuclear sub, and his executive officer was Vasily Arkhipov, who would go on to save the world four years later during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Preparing for her sea trials in January of 1960, confusion among shift crews caused one of the nuclear control rods to be bent. Repairs required dismantling the entire reactor, and sea trials were delayed for six months. By July, the Soviet naval ensign had finally been hoisted, and K-19 slipped out to begin her sea trials, which were scheduled to be completed by mid-November. But upon surfacing after a high-speed test run, the crew discovered that almost all the hull's rubber coating had detached, and K-19 had to return to port to be completely resurfaced. 
that accomplished, Captain Zatayev took K-19 on a deep dive all the way down to her test depth, which was around 1,000 feet, at which point serious flooding broke out in the reactor compartment and Zatayev quickly ordered K-19 back to the surface where it listed heavily to port due to the water she had shipped. It was later discovered that one of the construction workers had failed to replace a gasket. In October, the galley crew decided to dispose of a wooden crate by breaking it into pieces and flushing it down the toilet, which caused the ninth compartment to flood and more delays as workers struggled to unclog the system. And then the following month, the reactor's main circuit pump failed, causing a lack of cooling flow to the core. Specialists were dispatched to repair the pump while K-19 was still at sea. She was finally commissioned on April 30th, 1961. From then on, things seemed to function smoothly. For two months, anyway. On the 4th of July, 1961, while performing exercises in the North Atlantic, the coolant pressure in one of K-19's two reactors rapidly fell to zero. A major leak in the reactor cooling system had occurred. Normal procedure at this point would have been for K-19 to radio to Moscow for assistance and instructions, but the boat's long-range radio transmitter had been damaged in a separate incident. The reactor shut down automatically as the control rods were inserted, but the reactor continued to heat, reaching almost 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Realizing that before long, the reactor would melt through the hull and take the rest of K-19 with it, Captain Zatayev and Executive Officer Arkhipov had to make a fast and terrible decision. They ordered the engineering section to cut out an air vent and jury-rig it to contain the section of coolant pipe that had ruptured. Now, this would mean opening the sealed reactor compartment, but it was that or lose the boat. All seven of the engineering crew plus their divisional officer knew what that meant. But they went into the reactor containment anyway and eventually made enough of a repair that the core temperatures in the starboard reactor started to come down. By opening the containment door, the entire crew, including the hull and the nuclear missiles, were irradiated. All eight of the men who went in to make repairs died of radiation poisoning within a month. Fifteen more crewmen were to die from the effects within the next two years. Zatayev ordered K-19 to sail south, where he knew conventional Soviet diesel-electric boats were patrolling. Using the short-range radio, he called for assistance. Several American warships also monitored the distress call and offered to help, but Zadayev knew he could never let K-19 fall into American hands, so he continued south until he rendezvoused with S-270. The crew transferred to the conventional sub, which helped tow K-19 back to port, where continuing radiation exposure contaminated an area a mile in diameter. It was later discovered that a careless weld had caused a crack in the side of one of the cooling pipes. The Soviets removed the entire reactor and simply dumped it into the Kara Sea. Back in 2002, a movie called K-19, The Widowmaker, starring Harrison Ford, told the tale relatively faithfully, but with one glaring exception. At no point did the Russian crews ever refer to K-19 as The Widowmaker. They simply called the boat Hiroshima. At the end of 1961, the repaired and refitted K-19 returned to sea. In 1969, she collided with SSN-615 USS Gato, 200 feet below the Barents Sea. The impact completely destroyed K-19's bow sonar, and the sub blew its emergency ballast tanks and surfaced to limp home to port once again. 
Gatto continued on her patrol, apparently unfazed. On February 24, 1972, a fire broke out inside the pressure hull while K-19 was 400 feet below the surface. 28 more Russian sailors died in the incident, with another two succumbing after being transferred to yet another rescue ship. On August 15, 1982, an electrical short circuit severely burned two Soviet sailors, one of whom eventually died from his injuries. The doomed, luckless K-19 was finally decommissioned on April 19, 1990. Coincidentally, the exact day and date that the fantastically successful USS Skipjack underwent the same fate on the other side of the Atlantic. In March of 2002, K-19 was towed to the Nerpa shipyard in Murmansk, where it has slowly just rusted away. In stark contrast to the freshly painted and immaculately maintained Nautilus, the last pictures of K-19 show an orange hull covered in rust with gaping holes and structural bulkheads visible that make it look like the corpse of some ancient mechanical whale. When you compare the fates of these two pioneering nuclear subs, Nautilus and K-19, it looks like a textbook victory for the U.S. Submarine Service, technologically on another planet, when compared to the relatively primitive and accident-prone Soviet subs. But... USS Gatto, which had collided with K-19 with apparent impunity back in 1961, was one of the new Permit-class hunter-killer boats, a significantly improved successor to the Skipjack-class attack subs. Like most seagoing vessels, subs are classified according to the name of the first boat of the type. So Gatto, being a Permit-class boat, should mean that SSN 594, USS Permit, must have been the first of her type. But she wasn't. The first of these new, powerful attack boats was the one commissioned right before Permit, SSN 593. SSN 593 was the USS Thresher. She looked thoroughly modern, longer and sleeker than the Skipjack, but just as fast and much quieter, as well as possessing far better sonar. Since there were so many new systems aboard the Thresher, her sea trials took longer than expected, nearly nine months, but after some minor teething problems, she was commissioned on August 3rd, 1961. On April 9th, 1963, Lieutenant Commander John Wesley Harvey took USS Thresher out to sea after an overhaul, and in the company of the submarine rescue ship USS Skylark, she performed test dives to about half of her test depth. Test depth is the maximum depth that the sub is rated to operate under peacetime conditions. Exceeding test depth does not automatically destroy the sub, but once past test depth, all bets are off. Thresher remained submerged overnight, and at 6.30 a.m. on April 10th, she resumed contact with Skylark up on the surface by using the underwater telephone. Thresher then began a slow, routine series of underwater circles around and below Skylark, pressing ever deeper with each orbit and leveling out every 100 feet to recheck all systems before proceeding deeper. Thresher was approaching test depth when Skylark received a garbled message on the underwater telephone. Minor difficulties have positive up angle attempting to blow, shortly followed by an even more garbled message that included the number 900. Thresher had a test depth of about 1,000 feet. One final, heavily garbled message was heard, the only intelligible fragment of which was exceeding test depth. USS Thresher was never heard from again. 
A massive search soon discovered her wreckage scattered across the ocean floor some 8,400 feet below. Now, there was, of course, no chance for any survivors, although the hull, or what was left of it, came to rest at 8,400 feet. Thresher likely imploded somewhere between 1,300 to 2,000 feet, where at crush depth, the entire hull collapsed, killing all 129 of her crew. Best speculation is that a process called silver brazing resulted in microscopic cracks that sprang a leak in the engine room. Now, subs are trimmed to be neutrally buoyant at whatever depth they're operating at, and diving and ascending are normally controlled by the sub's motion through the water and controlled by the dive planes. Flooding in the engine department likely caused the reactor to shut down, at which point backup batteries would have driven the propeller to push Thresher back to the surface. But if the flooding in the engine department was too great, Thresher would be down by the stern and the electrical motors alone did not have the thrust to drive her back topside. Now at this point, Commander Harvey would certainly have ordered the emergency ballast tanks to have been blown, and for some time it was quite a mystery as to why this had not been done. But subsequent testing showed that when highly humid air was in the tanks, and in Thresher's case it was, the rapid expansion of the compressed air cooled the valve enough for frost to form, choking off the airflow. No doubt, the crew was working feverishly to restart the reactor, their boat sinking by the stern, but before she could recover, she had imploded and rained debris another 7,000 feet to the ocean floor. And so, despite all of the problems with the Soviet K-19, it was USS Thresher, a brand new, top-of-the-line American sub, that was the first nuclear vessel ever to sink with all hands, and it sent shockwaves through the Navy. And that confidence was shaken further in May of 1968, when the third ship of the earlier Skipjack class, SSN-589, was officially declared overdue from a patrol southwest of the Azores. Now, by this point in the Cold War, the U.S. Navy had an extensive system of underwater hydrophones scattered across the ocean floor all across the globe. So when SSN-589, USS Scorpion, failed to return to port as scheduled, they began a detailed search of acoustic recordings made during the time in question. Now, unlike Thresher, whose demise seemed relatively straightforward, the contending theories about what sank the Scorpion continue unabated to this day, ranging from exploding torpedoes to being sunk by enemy action. But sonar analyst Bruce Rule, author of How the Thresher Was Lost and How the Scorpion Was Lost, has painstakingly dissected the acoustic recordings of both Thresher and Scorpion. And working with Bob Lagasa, a lifelong submariner whose first command was USS Skipjack, Scorpion's older identical twin, the two men have put theories of Scorpion being sunk by Soviet forces or by one of her own torpedoes that circled back to sink the sub that launched it pretty definitively to rest. After the loss of Thresher in 1963, the Navy completely overhauled their standard operating procedures and training protocols in what they dubbed the SubSafe program. Now, one of the training exercises conducted as a result of the loss of Thresher was to intentionally simulate what had happened on her last dive, emergency reactor shutdown. Lagasa, who likely has more time aboard Skipjack-class subs than anyone else alive, reported something alarming he observed as chief engineer aboard USS Ethan Allen, SSBN-608, the first purpose-designed ballistic missile submarine in the U.S. Navy. 
While conducting a training exercise where the reactor was shut down underwater and the electrical batteries engaged to drive the boat to snorkel depth, the total rate of extremely heavy electrical discharge stayed within limits, but some of the individual cells making up the total battery power available would come critically close to exploding, and depending on the number of cells, they could explode with enough force to rupture the pressure hull. As engineers started to monitor the individual cells rather than just the electrical total as before, they were shocked to see how many times individual cells neared the point of explosion, especially when simulating the loss of reactor power that claimed the thresher. Upon making this horrifying discovery, engineers aboard Ethan Allen realized that four of the 126 cells that made up her battery were so unstable that they had to run jumpers around them to keep them permanently offline until they could be replaced. Working with the acoustic data, Rule and Lagasa are convinced that unlike Thresher, which suffered her fatal accident while on a deep dive just above test depth, Scorpion's fatal accident happened very close to the surface. They have concluded that after performing a loss of reactor test, weaker cells in the rear engineering compartment began to outgas hydrogen and then exploded killing or incapacitating everyone aft of the reactor section. Two distinct internal explosions were detected by hydrophones on the seabed before the catastrophic transient of Scorpion's hull imploding, signaling the split-second loss of 99 American submariners. It was these acoustic death rows that allowed the Navy to discover the Scorpion through simple triangulation. They found her relatively intact, although her sail had ripped off and fallen to the side, and the entire aft section of the boat had telescoped inward from the implosion, like a Napoleonic general collapsing his looking glass. Now, there was some cold comfort derived from Rule's analysis of the actual hull implosion. Unlike the submarine movies from World War II, where a sinking submarine springs hundreds of leaks as the water level slowly rises, the unbelievable pressures generated at the depth modern nuclear submarines routinely operate at means that the entire crew of the Thresher and those that might have survived the explosion on board Scorpion not only did not feel any pain, things happened so violently and so fast that they would not have been aware that the hull had given away at all. Rule calculated that when her hull finally failed, the rear section of Scorpion was pushed forward at a speed just under two thousand miles an hour. Sonar data shows that Thresher's hull completely imploded in 0.15 seconds. Scorpion was crushed even faster at about 0.11 seconds, that's a tenth of a second, meaning that the sailors aboard both Thresher and Scorpion were dead before they could perceive what had happened. They literally never knew what hit them. And nor did the crew of the Soviet submarine K-129, a diesel electric boat equipped with three ballistic missiles which sank on March 8th of that same year, 1968. K-129 took 83 men with her, not to 8,000 feet like the Thresher or to 10,000 feet like Scorpion. K-129 sank in the Pacific Ocean 16,000 feet below the surface. Even after an exhaustive search, the Soviet Navy never found the wreckage. You know, never before in history had the cloak and dagger trade spying, been so important, so necessary, and so prominent as it was during the Cold War. Eventually, each side had arsenals approaching 25,000 nuclear and thermonuclear warheads 
And by the time the vast polar radars on both sides could register an incoming attack, reaction time, the time before impact, was generally around 15 minutes. Now, by contrast, the Japanese fleet that sailed to launch the attack on Pearl Harbor had been well known to American intelligence for over a decade. The Japanese had managed to hide some significant assets, like the super battleships Yamato and Musashi, but there was not a single U.S. naval officer afloat or ashore who did not know that the Japanese had a navy, and a big one. Inbound air raids to London and Berlin usually had at least a half-hour notice, enough time for most citizens to get underground and avoid the relatively small damage done by conventional bombs. But once it became clear to both NATO and the Warsaw Pact that this Cold War had the ability to utterly obliterate thousands of cities, towns, and military installations within a 10 or 15-minute window, everything now hinged upon intelligence. Information about weapon system design, base locations, asset capabilities, and all the rest. Now, we knew, for instance, that the Soviet Union had ballistic missile submarines stationed off the east coast of the continental U.S. That knowledge was both common and worthless. What mattered were the things that were far harder to discern. How many subs were out there? What types were they? How many missiles did each type carry? What was the range of those missiles? And what had to be done in order to prepare them for launch? How much time would that take? You know, all of the landmass on Earth gathered together could easily fit inside the Pacific Ocean alone. And so the single most critical question about this immeasurably vast ocean battlefield was the simplest to state and the hardest to determine. Where are they? Intelligence, that is, information about enemy capabilities usually obtained through some form of espionage, pretty much comes in two flavors, called humant and SIGINT. Humant, or human intelligence, is information gathered by actual spies, defectors, informants, agents, double agents, and even triple agents. SIGINT, or signal intelligence, on the other hand, refers to information obtained technologically, bugging telephones, breaking radio codes, overflying a target with high-resolution cameras, and all the rest. Human intelligence, human, the use of spies, is as old as conflict itself. SIGINT, or signal intelligence, on the other hand, was relatively new. But as militaries became larger, more mechanized, and more powerful, SIGINT became ever more important. A spy in Japan might report that the Imperial Navy fleet has left a harbor. That's HUMANT. Knowing where that fleet was headed, because we'd monitored Japanese radio transmissions, and most importantly, broken the Japanese code, well, that was SIGINT. And just from this one example, you can see that while it's valuable to know that the enemy fleet has left port, it is infinitely more valuable to know where it is going. When the CIA hired Kelly Johnson and the Lockheed Skunk Works to build what was, at the time, the pinnacle of signal intelligence, the top-secret U-2 spy plane, both parties thought that its ability to fly at 70,000 feet, 15,000 feet above any Soviet aircraft that might be sent up to intercept it, would be protection enough from both enemy aircraft and surface-to-air missiles, or SAMs. Sheer altitude would protect the spy planes. But they were only half right. On May 1, 1960, CIA pilot Francis Gary Powers and his U-2 were shot down by an improved Soviet surface-to-air missile, resulting in a public relations catastrophe that the United States had no desire to repeat. And yet, somehow... 
continuing updates on Soviet assets and capabilities would need to keep coming. And that created a problem with two solutions. On January 21st, 1959, one year and three months after the Soviet Union stunned the world with the launch of Sputnik 1, a prototype American satellite was sitting on the launch pad at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. A Thor-class medium-range ballistic missile made up most of the rocket beneath it, while the relatively stubby Agena second stage would boost the satellite into orbit. Now, on that particular day, the Thor main stage remained empty during the test, but somehow, someone had chosen the wrong moment to conduct an exercise of the launch sequencing computer. This resulted in a signal being sent to the small outboard rockets used to separate the Thor from the Agena, which promptly ignited while on the pad. Quick-thinking technicians managed to shut down the Agena main engine as it was mistakenly spinning up to fire. This saved the payload and the Thor booster, which was able to be refurbished, but the mission, called Discoverer, was a complete failure. Discoverer had a catchy, exploration-themed name like the American Explorer and Vanguard satellites that had preceded it. But Discoverer was nothing like the primitive scientific testbeds that had already flown. In fact, it wasn't even the satellite's real name. The entire Discoverer program was a fake, a cover story. The satellite's actual designation was 1959 Echo-01, and it was the first of a series of CIA-run, space-based spy missions known as Corona. And while the optical and photographic elements were in place, newly invented television was far, far too blurry to provide anything like a useful image, and digital technology was still undreamed of, which meant that the Corona satellites would have to fly over their target, snap their pictures, and then eject a small re-entry capsule, which would then have to physically re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, deploy a parachute, and then get scooped up while still in the air by a propeller-driven aircraft. So on February 28, 1959, they tried again. The Thor Agena cleared the pad successfully, carrying 1959-002 Alpha, aka Discoverer 1, into the California sky. She was well on her way to mission success when telemetry from the Agena failed and the payload disappeared over the horizon, likely impacting somewhere in the South Pacific or perhaps on Antarctica. April 13, 1959, 1959-003 Alpha became the first satellite successfully launched into a polar orbit under the alias of Discoverer 2. It took some pictures, ejected the film recovery capsule, which descended to Earth somewhere in the general vicinity of Norway and was never seen again. June 1, 1959, for the first and only time in the Corona Project's history, the mission known as Discoverer 3 carried living passengers. Four live mice were put aboard the capsule, and not too much later, it was realized that the entire crew had committed suicide by eating the Krylon paint inside their capsule. The four additional mice of the backup crew were launched two days later, but sadly, an Agena malfunction sent them and the satellite crashing into the Pacific. June 25th, Discoverer 4 cleared the pad but failed to reach orbit when the Agena underperformed on the second stage burn. August 13th, Discoverer 5 overcompensated for Discoverer 4 by launching into an orbit too high to be able to recover the film. August 19th, a perfect orbit was achieved by Discoverer 6, but no intelligence was gathered due to the failure of the retro rocket used to bring the photographic packet back down. 
November 7th. Discoverer 7 also made it into space, but lost attitude control while still in orbit, and the photos it took were never recovered. November 20th, Discoverer 8 got inserted into an incorrect orbit by the Agena, which was turning out to be quite the prima donna. Never recovered. February 4th, 1960. The Thor first stage decided to go out for a cigarette break soon after launch, leaving Discoverer 9 to discover what it could about the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. February 19th, Thor again this time, spinning out of control shortly after launch before it and Discoverer 10 were intentionally destroyed by the range safety officer. April 15th, Discoverer 11 loses attitude control in orbit. Nothing is recovered. Now, during this entire GOAT rodeo called Project Corona, Project Aquatone, which flew the U-2, was gleefully snapping thousands of high-resolution pictures of key Soviet installations. But in between the failure of Discoverer 11 and Discoverer 12's inability to make it to orbit on June 29th, Project Aquatone took the 2x4 to the face when Powers and his U-2 Dragon Lady were shot down on May 1st, 1960. It was three months after that debacle that the CIA was finally able to retrieve its first successful Corona return capsule and actually develop some pictures. Discoverer 13, launched on August 10, 1960, was the first man-made object successfully retrieved from outer space beating the Soviet Union by nine days, the Russians having launched and recovered two dogs, Belka and Strelka, as well as 40 mice on their Korobol Sputnik 2 mission. Now, like the four mice launched on Discoverer 3, Belka and Strelka were, sadly, the backup crew. Exactly three weeks before, Chaika and Lashishka were aboard when the booster exploded shortly after launch. It was too low for the recovery parachute to fully deploy, and Chaika and Lashishka were killed when their capsule impacted the ground. Belka and Strelka, however, went on to become internationally famous canine cosmonauts, the first living creatures to venture to outer space and return alive. In fact, about a year after their single day in space, Strelka had a litter of space puppies, one of which was presented to First Lady Jackie Kennedy as a gesture of goodwill from the Russian people, which she accepted over the objections of President Kennedy's security advisors on the grounds that the dog might contain microphones implanted in its body in order to listen in on top-secret national security sessions. Corona would eventually get its act together. This first batch of satellites, codenamed KH-1 for keyhole, as in something you might look into a room through, well, it took 14 launches to achieve its first success. The KH-11 series marked the end of the program in 1991. Each of these massive spy satellites look exactly like a slightly smaller version of the Hubble Space Telescope, except the KH-11s point down, not up. And although the series officially ended with the KH-11 behemoths, there are rumors of an upgraded KH-12 and even a KH-13 series of stealth satellites that reportedly have the huge advantage of being able to alter their orbits and overfly targets without the enemy being aware of it. Now, of course, all of this would come much later. Back in the early summer of 1960, which saw the Paris summit in ruins and America wiping entire cartons of eggs off her face, something had to be done and it needed to be done right quick. The Corona Project was a bright future without a present. That endless thirst for critical intelligence needed to be slaked now. Something had to plug the gap 
between the U-2 and the Keyhole series, and the CIA knew exactly who to talk to about it. I mentioned earlier that when the agency and Lockheed thought that altitude alone could protect the U-2, they were half right. The U-2's long, gracefully tapered wings generated so much lift that the prototype aircraft flew 35 feet into the air while it was taxiing to the runway. Clearly, the U-2's problem was not lift. The U-2's problem was its speed. In the rarefied air at 70,000 feet, the U-2 was so lightweight and so delicate that if it slowed to less than 98 knots, that's 112 miles an hour, the wings would stall and the Dragon Lady would fall out of the sky. But if the pilot let her get above 102 knots, that's 117 miles an hour, aerodynamic loads would cause the aircraft to start to break apart. The CIA wanted and needed something less delicate and something much faster as well. Flying at a little over 100 miles an hour on long-range missions deep over enemy territory was a grueling experience for the fully spacesuited pilots. Crammed into a cockpit the size of a bathtub, U-2 missions would sometimes fly 5,000 miles in an excruciating 10 hours, which caused one of the Dragon Lady pilots to remark that he ran out of ass before he ran out of gas. But Kelly Johnson, who's running neck and neck with Burt Rutan for the title of the most innovative aircraft designer of all time, took the loss of Frank Powers U-2 personally. When the agency approached him about a successor to the U-2, Johnson stated right at the outset that he had no desire to build some incrementally improved version of the U-2 that would be obsolete before its first flight. Such an aircraft, Johnson said, would, quote, buy only a couple of years before the Russians would be able to nail us again. I want to come up with an aircraft that can rule the skies for a decade or more, unquote. The aircraft that Kelly Johnson designed and built would in fact rule the skies for a decade or more, but not even Kelly Johnson could possibly realize that his aircraft, which first flew on April 26, 1962, would continue to rule the skies forever. It has been nearly 60 years since that day, and in all of that time, more than half of the total time that man has been flying airplanes, nothing has flown as high or as fast as the aircraft produced by the program codenamed Oxcart. Anyone who knows anything about aviation can immediately identify the SR-71 Blackbird. It is, to say the least, noteworthy. But the SR-71 was not the plane that Kelly Johnson built for Oxcart. That would come later. Oxcart's bird was the A-12, a slightly smaller, slightly meaner, single-seat version of her younger half-sister, the SR-71. Confusing the two is a common and honest mistake. The two-seat Blackbird's fuselage is wider than the one on the Oxcart, flaring wider as they taper to the razor-sharp longitudinal creases known as the chines. The SR-71 looks fast even when sitting still, but the A-12 looks both fast and hungry. The Ox was a black dart, just over 100 feet long and 55 feet wide. Her entire airframe seems to be cut out of a single piece of polished obsidian. All except for the two engines, that is. These monsters were designed and built specifically for Oxcart. Two Pratt & Whitney J-58 turbojet ramjet hybrid engines, which at full afterburner devoured two and a half gallons of jet fuel per second and produced 32,500 pounds of thrust each. The A-12 could climb at an incredible 11,800 feet per minute. 
Her official range was 2,500 nautical miles, but with air-to-air -air refueling capabilities, the Ox could fly literally anywhere. When she finally leveled off, it was not at the now puny 70,000 feet that the U-2 could achieve. Later, the better-known SR-71 would fly missions at 85,000 feet, but the lighter and slightly faster single-seat A-12 could reportedly make it to 95,000. Both jets topped out right around Mach 3.2, that's well over three times the speed of sound. Now, aircraft have long been constructed from aluminum. It's light and strong for its weight, but flying at more than three times the speed of sound, the friction of the air heats the skin of the ox cart to almost 600 degrees Fahrenheit, way, way past the point where aluminum structures start to turn to butter. Titanium, however, melts at 3,000 degrees. The only way to construct the ox cart was to build it out of titanium, the lightest and hardest metal ever used in aircraft construction. Titanium would do the job, but U.S. supplies of the rare metal were very low. So the agency set up a series of proxies and dummy corporations, which allowed them to unobtrusively buy most of the titanium from the world's leading supplier, which happened to be the Soviet Union. And although titanium could handle the heat load, even a titanium airframe is still subject to the laws of physics, one of those laws being that metal, any metal, will expand when heated. Now that left Kelly Johnson with a problem. He could build an aircraft whose parts fit tightly together on the ground, or he could build one that's parts fit tightly at Mach 3, but he couldn't do both. As the A-12 was being fueled just before takeoff, the ox would develop leaks, and not just a few drops here and there, but entire rivulets of jet fuel falling onto the tarmac. But since Kelly Johnson couldn't have it both ways, he didn't. He built the A-12 intentionally loose on the ground, loose enough for it to leak like a sieve, and it would continue to do so up to and past the time when it could climb to meet an air-to-air -air refueling tanker where she would take on most of her custom-brewed JP-7 fuel. As soon as she was topped off, the A-12 lit the afterburners and climbed damn near all the way to outer space, rapidly gaining speed and heat as it did so. By the time the ox had settled down 90,000 feet above the ground and moving at three times the speed of sound, aerodynamic skin friction would heat the airframe to around 600 degrees Fahrenheit, at which point the metal would expand just so and seal the ox cart, including the fuel tanks, as snug as a bug in a rug. And the engineers at the Skunk Works had built one final ace up the black jet's sleeve. The A-12s flew high, they flew fast, and they had stealth. The radar cross-section on the A-12 was so small that even the best ground-based radars did not detect the ox until it was almost directly overhead. Floating there all alone in what came to be known as the High Fast Sanctuary, the A-12 was often faster than the surface-to-air missiles they sent up after her, but either way, unlike the lumbering U-2, by the time that whatever SAMs could make it to 90,000 feet, the black jet was long gone. No one really knows how many aircraft tried to intercept the black jets. In addition, some sources claim that over 1,000 surface-to-air missiles were launched at A-12s and SR-71s over the years. Not one of them ever came close. During their entire careers, neither the Ox nor the Blackbird sustained so much as a scratch on their radar-absorbing jet black paint. That is what Kelly Johnson and the Lockheed Skunk Works built 
for the CIA. Shortly after midnight on June 20th, 1974, one of the most famous ships in the world sailed with the high tide out of Long Beach Harbor in Southern California. The subject of press releases, photographs, protests, and even the target of L.A. County tax assessors, the huge vessel, complete with her towering derrick and flanking steel girder towers, was at last underway on her maiden voyage to change forever the way that precious metals could be collected for use in industry. She was on her way to the Mid-Pacific on a half-mad mission financed by a half-mad genius the reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes, and she was designed and built for one purpose only. She would scoop up hundreds of thousands of manganese nodules, each about the size of a walnut, off the floor of the deep ocean, where they slowly grew in their countless billions, like an endless carpet of metallic pearls. Designed by an upstart company of underwater engineers named Global Marine, the ship was a technological marvel, the very pinnacle of the burgeoning science of deep water engineering. Global Marine had been formed from the team of engineers who, in the early 60s, had built the first research ship to punch its way through the Earth's crust and into the mantle, a boundary that lies 20 miles below the surface on land but can be as little as three miles under the seabed. They later went on to design the revolutionary science vessel known as the Glomar Challenger, which used a series of thrusters at the bow and the stern of the ship to enable it to remain motionless over the same spot in the ocean for weeks or even months at a time. Glomar's chief naval architect, a down-to-earth genius named John Graham, would build Howard Hughes a Glomar Challenger on steroids, a bigger, beefier, more powerful ship which would become known as the Hughes Glomar Explorer. The Explorer, it was hoped and believed, would be the prototype of a new class of ocean-going vacuum cleaners that would suck up trillions of dollars worth of manganese nodules. In fact, in the years building up to the departure on this ambitious venture, many of these nodules, encased in small, clear plastic cases, were handed out at press and VIP events. Each one was a tiny nugget of manganese, nickel, copper, and cobalt, a small dollop of iron, silicon, aluminum, potassium, and titanium. And maverick recluse Howard Hughes, who built the gigantic spruce goose on a similar whim, was the only person in the world crazy enough to spend the hundreds of millions of dollars needed to simply go out there and pick them up off the ocean floor. The story had been in all of the papers for years before the famous ship left Long Beach on the night of June 20th, 1974, and none of it was true. The Hughes Glomar Explorer was not owned by Howard Hughes. It was owned by the Central Intelligence Agency. And it was not built to retrieve millions of metal lumps at the bottom of the ocean. It was designed and built exclusively to recover just one. The U.S. Navy had found the wreckage of K-129, the Soviet ballistic missile sub lost a few months before USS Scorpion back in 1968. And the CIA had built both the Explorer and the cover story in order to sail to where K-129 had come to rest at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It would then reach down 16,000 feet to the ocean floor, grab K-129 with a giant mechanical claw, and then bring it up to the surface where huge undersea doors running two-thirds the length of the enormous ship's keel would silently open and then close again once the Soviet sub was inside. 
The Glomar Explorer was, for all intents and purposes, mostly hollow, and its mission was to steal an entire enemy submarine, its code books, its cryptography devices, its nuclear torpedoes, and thermonuclear ballistic missiles, go down there, grab the whole enchilada, and do it right in front of the eyes of the entire world. U.S. naval analysts knew something serious had happened by the middle of March 1968. Some kind of massive, unexpected Soviet naval exercise was underway in the Pacific. At first, the SIGINT analysts were puzzled. It seemed as if the Russians had shaken loose every scientific ship they had and sent them, heavily escorted by the Soviet Navy, sailing east, line abreast, then pivoting the line left 90 degrees, heading north. It was clear that they were searching for something. But what? Now, keeping track of the comings and goings of Soviet ballistic missile submarines was job one for the intelligence community throughout the second half of the Cold War. And it wasn't long before they realized that one of these subs, a Gulf II-class diesel electric boat called K-129, was overdue. K-129 was armed with three SSN-5s, each with an 800 nautical mile range and each armed with a one-megaton thermonuclear warhead. It soon became abundantly clear that the Soviets had lost one of their ballistic missile subs, and the search continued for weeks until finally the Russians realized that they would never find the wreckage of a submarine lost in thousands of square miles of open ocean and at the incredible depth of 16,500 feet. The wreck of the Titanic lost in 1912 was only, only, 12,500 feet deep, it was far larger than K-129, and people had been searching for it for decades without a single trace. But by 1968, the Navy's SOSA system of underwater acoustic sensors had extended virtually across the entire planet. Intelligence analysts pulled the Navy tapes, searching for a sign of some kind of explosive event shortly preceding the mass Soviet mobilization. And sure enough, there it was, just past midnight on March 8th a series of sharp, concussive events at precisely 40 degrees north latitude and maybe a mile or two away from the international dateline. That acoustic signal was loud enough to be able to locate the sub with tolerable accuracy. The Soviets, on the other hand, had tried to search a vastly greater area since the mission of a missile sub is to submerge, go out, and intentionally get lost. So by the summer of 1968, we had a pretty good idea of where but we still didn't know what. Had K-129 exploded, raining debris across the ocean floor, leaving essentially nothing of value? Or was it possible that it was more or less intact? Well, there was only one way to find out. USS Halibut was one of the Navy's first nuclear subs built along conventional lines before the teardrop shape introduced by Albacore and Skipjack. Halibut was, quite frankly, already obsolete. Halibut had been built with a pronounced hump forward of the sail, in which two Regulus II missiles were housed. Now, in order to launch them, the sub would have to surface, attach the missile to the launch rails, slowly pull the delicate Regulus out of the hangar, and then place it on an angled ramp, which it would fire from the deck. In other words, to launch the Regulus missile, the submarine would have to abandon its only real asset. Stealth. But the CIA and the Navy realized that while the Regulus was obsolete, the hump-like storage hangar for the two missiles had made for a relatively large, well, for a submarine anyway, pressure-tight space that went down three decks 
Once the missiles had been unloaded, analysts and engineers marveled at all of the room they suddenly had. They immediately named this area the Bat Cave. In August of 1968, six months after K-129 had gone down, USS Halibut arrived at the Navy's Mare Island Station for an extensive refit. They added positioning thrusters, like those on the Glomar Challenger and the Glomar Explorer. They added a complete photo lab and saturation diving chambers. They welded fore and aft skids beneath the boat so that she could come to rest on the bottom. They added side-look sonar and installed an enormous Sperry mainframe computer, the most powerful in the world at that time. They built a dummy mini-sub behind the sail to help sell the research cover story. And most importantly, they added the fish an underwater photography platform attached to nearly 20,000 feet of steel cable that could be deployed and recovered from the bottom of the boat. Halibut was not substantially different from Thresher, Scorpion, or K-129, meaning she would implode less than 2,000 of the 16,000-foot distance to the seabed. But the fish, neutrally buoyant and towed more than three miles below and behind them, could be kept a constant 20 to 30 feet off the seafloor. It was grueling, tedious work. The Soviets were still sensitive about this area of the ocean, so Halibut had to submerge a good distance away and travel to the wreck location underwater, then deploy the fish as she slowly marked out a search grid. And there was no real-time imagery either. After a reconnaissance pass, the fish had to be winched back into the sub where the photographic film would be handed over to a technician who then developed it in the Bat Cave's darkroom. This went on for months. And then, suddenly, there it was. The ghostly image of K-129 slowly rising through the chemicals in the red light of the Halibut's darkroom. It was incredibly, mostly intact, and the photo showed the wreck in incredible detail. The huge sail that housed the three missiles was still attached to the hull. And the incredible photos showed at least one of the priceless SSN-5 missiles was clearly still in its launch tube. The greatest intelligence prize of the Cold War had been found. Now the question was, could they get to it? The operation, codenamed Azorian, would do the seemingly impossible, design and construct a huge ship custom-built for a single, one-shot-only mission. They also had to build a gigantic claw called the RV, or recovery vehicle, which would soon be affectionately known as Clementine. The Explorer could be built out in the open, but for anyone to get one look at Clementine was to give the entire game away. So the CIA would build a second incredibly huge structure, the HMB, or Hughes Mining Barge. Picture one of those enormous hangars built to house a blimp or a zeppelin, and then take that huge hangar and put it on top of a ship then add buoyancy tanks that would allow the entire thing to submerge hundreds of feet deep and then ascend again. The HMB alone was an engineering wonder, and it's still in use today. A few months before she set sail for the Mid-Pacific, the Explorer took a few spins around the block for sea trials. Now, one of those tests took her to Isthmus Harbor, just 26 miles across the sea, where Catalina Island narrows to just a few hundred yards wide. Surrounded by curiosity seekers, she dropped anchor there for a few days, and a day after the explorer arrived at Catalina Island, the Hughes mining barge arrived. The genius of the cover story now became fully clear. Howard Hughes, the super-secretive half-mad recluse, 
had supposedly built the manganese rake in secret, but it had taken longer than expected to build, and Hughes, with his famous pathological need for secrecy and privacy, wanted to install the confidential, smallish device away from prying eyes. So there, both ships sat, in broad daylight, surrounded by a sea of pleasure boats filled with curiosity seekers. All but one or two of them returned home after the sun had set. Whoever remained was politely but firmly reminded of Mr. Hughes' notorious sense of privacy and escorted from the immediate area. But the pleasure boats weren't even a problem. Only a scuba diver practically underneath the explorer would be in a position to see what was actually going on. On the night of February 26, 1974, the gigantic box hangar on top of the Hughes mining barge started to settle in the water. A few hours later, it was 160 feet below the surface on the hard, flat bottom of Isthmus Bay. Giant doors on the top of the blimp hangar opened underwater. Meanwhile, the Hughes Glomar Explorer innocuously raised anchor and using her maneuvering thrusters, positioned herself directly above the sunken HMB. Then slowly, the drilling pipes that would make up Clementine's umbilical connection to the surface were assembled at the derrick and lowered through the vast open middle of the ship known as the moon pool, then past the open doors on the bottom of the Explorer and then down to Clementine. Explorer's hydraulic dampers and elaborate bearings, the largest ever cast, would allow the derrick to remain absolutely motionless the entire time. Divers then connected the string of pipes to the attachment cables on Clementine and then slowly, carefully, Explorer lifted Clementine into the moon pool, closed the doors, and sailed serenely back to Long Beach Harbor, a secret within a secret. During the years that the Explorer and the Hughes Mining Barge and Clementine were under construction, Halibut and her fish had returned to the wreck site and taken hundreds of high-resolution photos of the wreck. Both Explorer and Clementine had been built around measurements taken during the intricate, precise photo mapping performed by Halibut's toad fish. Mechanical issues prevented the recovery of a sample of the sea floor, so Clementine's extendable, expendable legs were engineered to have enough strength to pull K-129 from the suction created by the deepest mud that could reasonably be expected. A small Soviet spy ship disguised as a fishing trawler had been dispatched to keep an eye on things, but all the Russians saw was the admittedly impressive sight of Explorer's hull rocking gently in the swells while the top of the gantry remained absolutely motionless. As Clementine was slowly lowered into the depths, one length of pipe at a time, there came a moment when her powerful searchlights and multiple state-of-the-art underwater TV cameras revealed a ghostly, elongated object just below. As Clementine grew ever closer, the entire structure of the sub became visible, everything precisely where it was supposed to be. But there was one anomaly. Before they began to attempt to raise K-129, a sharp-eyed technician noticed a hammer lying on the hull of the sub. He was certain that it had not been present in the high-resolution photos taken by Halibut. So the photos were laid out, and sure enough, there was no hammer there, while there certainly was one there now. now this was utterly baffling, until a quick questioning of the crew revealed that one of the workers in the moon pool had accidentally dropped his hammer into the open chamber before Clementine was deployed, and it had fallen straight down for 16,000 feet before coming to rest directly on top of the target. 
Now, once in place, Clementine's legs extended down into the seabed. And then, the giant fingers of the open mechanical claw slowly started to close. And here appeared to be some good news. The seabed had almost no mud at all. As they tightened the grip around K-129, the tines of the claws scraped and grated against the seabed. Then, finally, the moment of truth had arrived. A command was sent down the umbilical, and Clementine's legs began to extend, biting deeper into the sea floor. Finally, they would go no further, and as the legs continued to extend, both Clementine and her cargo slowly rose from where the Russian sub had lain in total darkness for the past six years. Once the lift out of the unexpectedly light mud was accomplished, the Metaboard Explorer started the painstaking process of lifting millions of pounds of steel, mud, and missiles back to the surface. One of the Azorian engineers described just how unbelievably difficult this feat was by reducing the scale to something that the mind could actually grasp. Imagine, he said, that you were standing on the top of the Empire State Building. Your mission was to lower a claw by assembling hundreds of lengths of pipe one inch in diameter and then drop it all the way down to street level. Once there, you had to position the claw precisely above a compact car, a car packed completely with gold to give you an idea of the weight, and then pull the car up to the top of the building. That is what the men of Project Azorian had done. The lift had gone flawlessly, the hard part was over, and Clementine and her cargo were 6,720 feet above the bottom of the Pacific, about a third of the way to the surface. Then something happened. A violent shudder ran through the enormous vessel and waves shook the inside of the moon pool. Technicians monitoring the front of Clementine reported that everything looked good, but back towards the back of the recovery vehicle, right in front of their horrified eyes, the men who had worked so long and so hard watched as the rear two-thirds of K-129 fell free of Clementine's grip and began a second and final trip straight down to where Clementine's legs remained standing. At first, the Azorian team could not believe their eyes, or they didn't want to anyway. But when they managed to recover their wits, they could see that two-thirds of K-129, the valuable two-thirds, had indeed broken free, leaving only 40 feet or so of the doomed sub's bow section still in place. All of the big things had gone right. Only one little, little thing had gone wrong. Mechanical problems aboard Halibut's remotely towed fish meant that they had not been able to get a sample of the seabed where K-129 had come to rest. So the engineers that designed and built Clementine had prepared for the worst-case scenario. But they had not prepared for the best-case scenario. It was later realized that they'd made the tines of the claw from the strongest steel available on the planet, which unfortunately was also some of the least flexible. The tines were designed to reach into the mud and curl underneath the wreck, but there was so little mud at that location that the fingers of the claws had scraped across the bedrock as the fist had closed. Now, this in turn put stress fractures on several of the tines, which suddenly failed after lifting the submarine 9,000 feet off the seafloor. Champagne glasses had already been laid out in Washington and Long Beach, even aboard the Hughes Glomar Explorer, and where there had once been giddiness, euphoria even, in the space of a few seconds, all of that turned to bitter bile. When they came to realize that the sail housing the missiles, the control room with its launch procedure manuals, and the radio room with its codebooks and decrypting machinery had literally slipped through Clementine's mechanical fingers. 
When Clementine finally reached the surface, the doors had closed and the moon pool had been drained of water. The bow of K-129, still holding a nuclear torpedo, remained to be examined, although everyone knew that the good stuff, the stuff they came for, would not be there. They removed scores of items from the wreck, which now suddenly looked enormous as it towered above the guys on the floor of the moon pool. They recovered a few useful documents and the torpedo, of course. They recovered the ship's bell, and they recovered three complete skeletons still in their Soviet naval uniforms. One of them was found in his bunk, a technical manual still in his hands. The three bodies and a few other assorted body parts were gently removed from the wreckage and taken to the onboard morgue. The recovery of bodies had not been unexpected. And then, just before their departure from this place of death and heartbreak, the crew of the Explorer gathered for a final task. It was nighttime, and a large steel box had been constructed, the two metal doors on top painted a brilliant red. One by one, three shrouded figures were reverently laid inside this box, covered with the ensign of the Soviet Navy as their national anthem was played and prayers read in both English and Russian. The box was then sealed and as gently as possible lowered into the dark waters by a crane. The cables were released and almost instantly, the bright red top of the box disappeared into the black waters, returning the Russian sailors to their boat and their crewmates. Just a few years ago, Bruce Rule, whose acoustic analysis did so much to resolve the mystery of the USS Scorpion, made an astonishing discovery. The Navy's Sosis hydrophones had heard internal explosions aboard K-129 before she sank. There's no question about that. But three strange sounds, unlike anything ever heard before, appeared at a precise interval. And this continued well past what everyone had assumed would be the point at which the sinking K-129 would have reached crushed depth. Rule is now convinced and he has acoustic evidence down to a few milliseconds to back this up, that given the precise location in time, midnight, and in space, exactly 40 degrees north and directly astride the international dateline, he believes that what had doomed K-129 was, like Thresher and Scorpion, a training exercise gone wrong. Just over one minute before the major event that would have marked the start of the drill, the first explosion is heard at T-minus 62 seconds. It lasted for a second and a half and was estimated to have the explosive power of 10 pounds of TNT. And remember, that is inside the pressure hull of the submarine. Rule believes that this first explosion killed or incapacitated the entire crew. And his reasoning is simple. A second explosion occurred 45 seconds after the first at T-minus 17 seconds, but since one of the bodies was found in his bunk reading a manual, it seems inconceivable to rule, and to me for that matter, that an explosion of that magnitude could occur but not be reason enough for a man to put his book down and get up out of his bunk. Now, very likely, the entire crew was killed or incapacitated by the first explosion at T-minus 62. The second at T-minus 17 lasted a second longer and was twice as powerful, equivalent to about 20 pounds of TNT, the entire force of which remained contained within the pressure hull. A third internal explosion at T-minus 13 seconds occurred shortly after the second one was but considerably less powerful, estimated at 5 pounds of TNT. 13 seconds after the third explosion comes a sound that Rule assigned as zero hour, T-minus zero. On or about noon on March 11th, 1968, 
One of the R-21-D4 ballistic missiles ignited while still in its launch tube. 1.3 seconds later, the engine had developed full thrust and the rocket engine continued firing for 95.2 seconds while still inside the launch tube. At T plus five seconds, another sound is heard. The acoustic signature is consistent with the sound of the rocket engine burning its way through the launch tube and venting the full rocket blast into the sub itself. That time is consistent with the quality and thickness of the steel used to build the launch tube. Because of the Soviet sailor found lying in his bunk, Rule is convinced that the first explosion at T-63 killed or rendered unconscious the entire crew. It might be theoretically possible that some members survived the first and the second and even the third internal explosions prior to rocket engine start. But five seconds after that, the exhaust burned through the launch tube, turning the inside of K-129 into a flamethrower. There was zero chance whatsoever that someone could survive the heat, toxic gases, and overpressure caused by this event. And that should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. Six minutes and one second after the ignition of the R-21 Delta IV missile, an identical series of acoustic events occurred. With the entire crew dead and the interior of K-129 a scorched cinder, a second missile received a launch command. It too burned all the way to fuel exhaustion. A rocket, you see, provides not only the fuel, but also the oxygen needed to burn it. The third missile did not fire. Finally, the last acoustic signal received should have been the sharp slap of K-129's hull imploding, but that event never occurred, despite the sub sinking 16,000 feet to the ocean floor. Now, there can only be one explanation for this. By the time K-129 reached what would have been its crush depth, it had completely flooded, open to the sea, the pressure on both sides of the sub's hull would have been equal. This is why the wreck seemed to be in good enough condition to attempt a salvage. So, what commanded the second missile launch after everyone was dead? Bruce Rule thinks there can only be one explanation, that Soviet subs carried and may still carry the equivalent of a dead man switch, meaning once activated, the missiles would launch themselves unless human intervention occurred in order to stop it. Many, if not most, of the men who worked on Project Azorian have died by now, proud of what they had achieved and yet never completely over the heartbreak felt when most of K-129 fell back 7,000 feet to the ocean floor. But Bruce Rule's analysis, if correct, and it certainly seems to be, indicates that had the tines on Clementine not fractured during the lift, and if most of the K-29 had not slipped through her broken fingers, then the result would have been exactly the same. The men on Project Azorian would have had the entire prize safely inside the moon pool, doors shut and water pumped out. They would have likely headed straight for the hatches on top of the sail, eager to get to the control and radio rooms and the priceless intelligence bounty that they had worked so long and so hard to retrieve. But all they would have found would be the charred, semi-molten remains you might find after emptying a blast furnace. None of the manuals, code books, or cryptography gear would have been even recognizable, let alone recoverable. If Bruce Rule and his acoustic analysis is correct, the single greatest espionage operation in history was doomed before it set sail, because what the Hughes Glomar Explorer and her recovery vehicle Clementine had been built for was never there in the first place. Back in the early 70s, 
the tab for Project Azorian came to about $800 million, which would be about $4 billion today. Now add to that the price of the U2 program, Project Aquatone, the A12 built for Project Oxcart, and the multiple satellites of Project Corona, and you end up with tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars spent on the American technological wizardry that had come up with such amazing signal intelligence. But none of these programs, nor all of them combined, would come close to what was learned in the single greatest intelligence hall of the entire Cold War. In late 1967, an American sailor, short on cash and dressed in civilian clothes, walked into the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. He was in there for a while, but when he finally emerged, he had several thousand dollars in his pocket, payment for a top-secret radio cipher card that he'd stolen from the Navy and exactly the kind of thing that Project Azorian was designed to retrieve. Even better, he'd shrewdly negotiated an ongoing salary of between $500 to $1,000 a week. He used this money to pay off some of his several outstanding debts and to hire a professional bartender for the failing nightclub that he owned. As a chief warrant officer in the United States Navy, he was transferred in 1969 to San Diego to train new Navy personnel in his field of expertise, which was radio communications. Here he made an important friend, Jerry Whitworth, who was also on his way to becoming a chief petty officer in the U.S. Navy. Things were starting to get a bit tight for the sailor, and he was running out of useful information to sell to the Soviet Union for his $500 a week. But Whitworth had access to even more sensitive material, and so the secrets and the money continued to flow. In 1976, he retired from the Navy to become a private investigator, but not before recruiting his brother, Arthur, and his son, Michael, into the family business. His wife, Barbara, whom he was said to have beaten somewhat regularly, knew about the little mom-and-pop operation, but remained well clear, never touching the actual merchandise. The two divorced in 1976, and somewhat later, Barbara was worried that her son, who unbeknownst to her was already a spy, would be pulled by her ex-husband into the spy ring. Now, in order to prevent this, she decided to call the FBI with some news that they might be interested in. But they ignored her, certain she was just another loon with an axe to grind against her ex. And the fact that she was often roaring drunk when she made the calls did not help her credibility any. She later said that had she known her son had already been recruited, she would have never made the call. In November of 1984, she again went to the Boston office of the FBI. They once again dismissed her as a drunk, bitter woman bent on revenge. But since the person she was accusing lived in Virginia, the Boston office sent the report to the bureau station in Norfolk. Those guys somewhat reluctantly decided it might be worth pursuing. John Anthony Walker was arrested during the early morning hours of May 20th, 1985. Just prior to his arrest, he had been observed placing a package in a remote wooded area. Inside that package were 124 pages of highly classified information recently stolen from the USS Nimitz, where Walker's son Michael was assigned. When Michael was arrested aboard the Nimitz, his locker was found to be stuffed with page after page of highly classified information. Word having traveled quickly throughout the ship, Michael Walker had to be escorted off the carrier by armed guard in order to protect him from his fellow sailors and Marines who likely would have beaten him to death. During its 18-year history, it is estimated 
that the Walker spy ring handed more than one million classified documents to the KGB. It was Walker that informed the Soviets that the U.S. subs could easily track Soviet boomers through their cavitating propellers. Credible reports claim that even the effectiveness of B-52 missions in Vietnam was reduced significantly by information provided by Walker. He gave them advanced propeller designs, soundproofing methods, operations information, cryptography secrets. He gave them everything. The technological wizardry of the American signal intelligence had cost the United States tens of billions of dollars, and that money had been well spent. But after his arrest, a New York Times story estimated that 18 years of spying had cost the Soviet Union a mere $350,000 in payments to John Walker for information that was literally priceless. The Soviets could never match American technological sophistication when it came to signal intelligence, but they were, had been, and would remain the undisputed masters of human human intelligence. They hadn't built Mach 3 spy planes or constellations of spy satellites, and they'd not tried to raise a submarine from the deepest depths of the Pacific. All they had done was pay $1,000 a week to an alcoholic wife-beater, a trader who not only put his fellow sailors in mortal peril, but who single-handedly altered the balance of power between the United States and the Soviet Union, allowing the Russians to leapfrog the decades of research and engineering efforts needed to develop all of this technological magic in the first place. John Anthony Walker died of unknown causes on August 28, 2014, while still in prison. He would have been eligible for parole in 2015. The Cold War, What We Saw, is written and presented by Bill Whittle, produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer is Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our associate producer is Katie Swinnerton. Post-production producer, Alex Singaro. Story producer, Jared Sachel. Edited by Matthew Scheller. Audio recorded by Mike Coromina. Original music and mixed by Kyle Perrin. Designed by Cynthia Angulo. The Cold War, What We Saw, is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright, Esoteric Radio Theater 2020.